A written transcript of this episode is provided by Starburst. For more information, you can see the show notes. Welcome to Data Mesh Radio with your host, Scott Hurlman, sponsored by Starburst. This is Adrian Estala, VP and Field CDO at Starburst and host of Data Mesh TV. Starburst is the leading contributor to Trino, the open source project, and the Data Mesh for Dummies book that I co-wrote with Colleen Tarto and Andy Mott. To claim your free book, head over to starburst.io. Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Hurlman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left Data Stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in founding things, but I've left to start Data Mesh Understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do Data Mesh well. We have free implementer introduction and roundtable programs, in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? I interviewed Yelena Samulova, who's the co-founder and CEO at the ML Model Monitoring Company and open source project, Evidently AI. This bottom line up front is quite a bit different from other recent bottom line up fronts. Uh, I'm going to add a lot of color on not just what was said, but how it could apply to data and analytics work, especially for data mesh. So taking a lot of learnings from machine learning and, and applying it to data and analytics, especially data mesh. It's a bit theoretical in nature, but I think it provides a lot of food for thought. So some key takeaways or thoughts, you know, this time specifically from my point of view, based on what I learned in this conversation. Number one, a good rule of software that applies to ML and data, especially mesh data products. If you build it, it will break. Set yourself up to react to that. You know, act accordingly. Number two, maintenance may not be, you know, quote unquote sexy, but it's probably the most crucial aspect of ML and data in general. It's very easy to create a data asset and move on. But doing the work to maintain is really treating things like a product. Number three, ML models are inherently expected to degrade. When they degrade, for a number of reasons, they must be retrained or replaced. Similarly, on the mesh data product side, we need to think about monitoring for degradation to figure out if the mesh data product is still valuable or worth the spend, especially, or how to increase that that value. Again, the return on investment, not just the return. If it's becoming more and more expensive to maintain, should we move on from it? Number four, 
data drift, which would be changes in the information input into your model, such as like a new prospect base. So what you were trying to actually react against has changed. It's a crucial concept in data and analytics too. Are we still sharing information about the things that matter in a way that is understandable? Are we encapsulating what's happening in the real world in our mesh data products? A lot of what Andrew Padilla talked about in his episode. Number six, concept drift feels similar to semantic drift in the analytics world. So we can look to potentially tape deeper learnings from how people approach and combat concept drift from ML and apply it to data mesh. I haven't seen anybody specifically writing how to do that, but I think it's important to start to look to. Number seven, how can we monitor degradation in mesh data products and prevent that degradation in our data and analytics work? Historically, reports drifted further and further from reality with no intervention because the pain of change was so high. Are we fully reliant on the domain to know when something has degraded? Can we use software to help us detect semantic drift? Very early days on that one. I've heard it come up in a lot of conversations, but I don't have a good answer. Number eight, ML models are designed to do one thing very well. Unfortunately, we don't have a good framework for reuse at that model level in ML that we could apply to data mesh. Maybe at the ML feature level, talk about that in a second. Number nine, ML models have expected performance metrics. Those expectations need to be set through conversations between the business team and the L- M- and the ML team. So this would be like, how well are we looking to raise revenue from using this model? Or what's our expected conversion rate? So measure using KPIs. Can we use a similar approach to expectations, at least for some specific use cases for a mesh data product? Number 10. When building an ML model, you need to consider scope, business purpose, expectations, measurement against expectations, etc. Similarly, when doing any data work, you should consider the same. It is somewhat hard to measure the impact of most mesh data products, but it doesn't mean you shouldn't try. What are you trying to achieve with the data product, and is it meeting those expectations? Is the business need still relevant, or has it changed? This is kind of important when you're thinking about, should we actually create a data product? What's the, if we serve the use case, is that going to provide a lot of value? Number 11, regarding graceful evolution and preventing breaking changes due to changes in sources or, you know, kind of causing downstream breakages from changing the ML model and or its inputs and outputs. ML, unfortunately, does not have any answers that we aren't already using on the data and analytics side. Good communication, contracts, monitoring and observability, etc. No silver bullet or MLMFD, which would be machine learning magic fairy dust. (laughs) Doesn't exist, unfortunately. The concept of a feature in ML, a smaller component of the model that might be reusable across multiple models could be interesting to consider in data mesh. It would likely break with Jamak's view of each data product owning its own transformation logic, but could create almost proto-transformed data, almost like a service bus to easily serve data products. It probably has a lot of drawbacks. I do not recommend this, but it is interesting to consider and think about. 
Number 13, guardrails on ML models help to keep the models from doing things like reacting to data that is out of the norm. As Yelena said, if an ML-based recommendation on a website is a bit off, you know, the recommendation engine, the the conversion rate falls, but that's not the end of the world. You know, uh, if the if Amazon recommends that you buy another toilet seat after you just bought a toilet seat, when you're like, why would I buy another toilet seat? Okay, their conversion rate falls, but it's not a big deal. But what if you are dealing with big dollar decisions? Should we look to proactively put in guardrails into our data products? Probably yes, if they are crucial, if they're driving crucial decisions. Consider failure modes and what to do in those cases, right? We need to really think about should we have guardrails to make sure that even though we might think that the data processing is correct, that we don't want to push data uh, out there that that really has changed significantly. You know, uh, this is a big thing in the observability space. And finally, number 14, getting to fast incremental value is crucial when developing ML models. There needs to be very good trust and communication so people understand the initial quality level might not be great as you iterate towards a better model or mesh data product. (laughs) This is becoming a common theme. How can you release a version 0.1 or even 0.0.1 of your mesh data product and still drive value now while getting it to that quality level of 1.0? So I think there's a lot to learn from this episode and think about how could we apply what we've learned uh, in, in good practices, best practices in machine learning that we could as well to data and analytics, specifically in data mesh. Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode. Okay, very, very excited for today's episode. I've got uh, Yelena Samuelova, and I apologize if I murdered the name, please feel free to correct it, but um, who's here. She's the CEO, co-founder of Evidently AI, which is a one of the, the few that I've seen that is actually open source uh, software in the kind of ML, ML ops, ML monitoring space, which I think is really Um, it's awesome that there's some open source out there and that's kind of what we're trying to do with the podcast about uh, open source information and and all of that. So we're going to be talking about a concept that's been coming up more and more in general, um, in kind of data mesh talks about drift because historically the cost of change in data has been extremely high, right? We haven't been able to actually monitor for when things are changing because, uh, well, partially, we haven't really monitored for when things are changing because the world hasn't changed nearly as quickly as it is now. But also, the cost of change was so high that people just said, okay, I get it. Something has changed. We're going to wait until it's totally broken or totally not relevant to make a change. And that's what we're trying to get away from with within data mesh and, you know, kind of these 
gentle evolutions as to make sure that we're staying on path with what's actually happening in the real world instead of just keeping the same report going. So kind of long intro to this, but I think it's really important for, for people to, to understand these concepts. And uh, the ML space is, is because of how much information that's flowing through it has so much more um, kind of depth around drift. And so um, Yelena has been very, very kind in offering up her time to help explain this topic. And and I kind of kept the the newbie mindset on this rather than trying to dig too deep. So um, hopefully I, I'm I'm not talking too, too stupidly about this stuff, but I, I know some of the audience members, it might be a new concept to them. So again, too long of an intro, but uh, Yelena, I'm very excited about this. If you don't mind, if you could give people a bit of an introduction to yourself, and then we can jump into the conversation at hand. Thanks, Scott. Uh, it is indeed a very exciting topic. So uh, as mentioned, myself and my co-founder, we are working on uh, an open source tool that helps you monitor machine learning models in production. So we are startup founders. Probably what is interesting is where we are coming from, because before we embarked on this journey to build Evidently, uh, we have been working together for many years, uh, creating machine learning solutions and deploying them in production. Actually, we started fairly early, as long as 2014, when it was still a fairly new topic. And uh, people didn't even call it AI back then. It was still big data sort of thing. And we were working on deploying solutions in different industries, from manufacturing to retail to finance, you name it. In our previous startup, we specifically focused on industrial sector, working with companies like oil and gas, uh, steel, manufacturing companies of all sorts, helping them create solutions that optimize industrial processes. So what we've seen and what I've seen personally and participated in was basically the development and deployment of these models in the real world and witnessed all the proliferation of tools that appeared recently in the MLOP space and kind of the evolution of the industry. So I'm happy to share my insights and my learnings from this and uh, specifically on the topic of model maintenance because that's what I'm excited about, basically everything that happens after you create machine learning model and you finally start using it, which is somewhat boring topic, but I find it really exciting. Well, I, I but I think this is really crucial, right? Because you're... You, People think that you model once and then it's it's done, but like exactly what you're talking about of what's happening in the real world, right? It, it has this changed. What what's going on with this? What's actually happening relative? If if we're doing something that's so crucial to the way we interact with the world, right? The way we interact with our our customers and our information in real time, it's so so crucial. So let let's start with kind of a general um, overview of of what is drift? Like, what is it and kind of what causes it? Mm -hmm. So first of all, let's define the terms, because I'm sure there is some understanding of what drift is uh, in traditional data analytics, right? In machine learning, it might have slightly different understanding. So usually we talk about machine learning model drift, which is like a general term that says that the model performance degraded. It suddenly or gradually starts behaving worse, and it doesn't bring the value that you expect it to. And there are usually two reasons for that that you might choose from. One is data drift, which is the situation when the model is now applied to a different data that is, has not been seen when you created this model. So imagine that you were predicting something and now you're making these predictions for a new population because maybe you have customers from a different location or with different behavioral patterns and your model will not perform as well. And another situation is so-called concept drift, when basically the real world relationship that your model is modeling 
are changing. For example, it might be uh, a change in how you log the data in your app, or maybe there is a pandemic and everyone is and everything is behaving differently. So there are like multiple examples depending on specific application that you can think of, but all these changes they affect the performance of the model, leading to it not performing as you want. Like it might be less accurate, it might be giving correct predictions, and effectively it doesn't bring you the return on investment and the business value that you expected to. And this is something that with machine learning you expect to happen. You know that no model lasts forever, that it will degrade and become worse with time. So you have to factor it from the very beginning, how you're going to update and retrain this model when it is in operation. And, and how do you, I mean, you know, I think this is something that uh, when you think about product thinking ML, it seems like it's it's a much faster uh, kind of product concept of, of churn and burn that, you know, these models come in and go and come in and go. But um, like, how, how do you start to think about um, how long models typically last? Is it just completely all over the map or, uh, you know, with how fast things are changing in the real world? Um, how do we really think about that? Of course, it depends. So there are some models that are pretty stable. So for example, in manufacturing that I was already mentioning, you might often work with a very stable environment. So things don't change as drastically on a production line, right? If you're using this data that's coming from some sensors, then it might not be changing like in a minute, right? In some situations when you're working with behavior data, like user data, it might be changing like every day pretty pretty lot. So you would need to factor that in. And actually, you can even measure it. So like when you're creating your model, you're using some historical data that you're training your model on, right? And you can actually evaluate like how different it is and how it changes with time. But of course, depending on the application, depending on how you build your model, the speed of model degradation varies. And, and here we're talking about like, you know, natural model degradation. So something that we can expect to happen because the world changes, the model will not change with it automatically. But then there are also like some drastic events that you can factor in. I mean, pandemic is like a perfect example, like a telltale of <laughs> some drift happening everywhere, right? But it might be something that affects your specific domain. Like, I don't know, change in interest rate, you know, like would affect some credit scoring models and some sort of situations that might just happen one day overnight and it will affect your model, right? So you need to be able to catch this sort of like sudden bugs as well. That's, and, and I think that's, really interesting and and how do we i'm trying to think about how we take that same concept and think about just kind of general analytical models right because what what we're trying to do with data mesh is is share what's actually happening in the real world and so what's happening in the real world is obviously changing like you said just with these ml models but i don't think i've seen many people talk about this and and semantic drift and which is kind of the concept drift of like, but it's also what what the the concept of something is is changing as well, and I don't know that that's flowing as much into the ML model because you are replacing them. <laughs> like there is kind of planned obsolescence, and 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 do you when you start to see models drift, is it that you kind of recompute them and still try and have them do the same thing, or is it? more people rip and replace, like, how do you start to think about what typically happens? I know it's probably all over the map, but is it that that people just keep trying to replace the same model and then what they're actually trying to do it for is no longer really that relevant or it doesn't drive the needle? And so they're, they're 
putting a lot of effort towards something that doesn't matter? Or In this case, the usual action is to retrain the model, meaning that you basically take the newer data that you collected and you put it pretty much like in the same processing steps that you used when you created the model in the first place. But then it might not work. You might actually need to rebuild the model, right? So it might be like adding additional data sources, uh, using a different modeling approach, maybe testing out uh, different features and so on. And it, it depends. I mean, you usually start with the first one. Then if it doesn't work, you will try the second one. It might be that the model is just becoming so irrelevant that it's better not to use it at all, right? You can switch to some well, human decision-making, if you were trying to automate something, you can go back, right? Or, or maybe you can use some fallback strategy, which can be like alternative, uh, maybe rule-based decision even. So there are these actions that you can take. Uh, usually you start with retraining. You can also rebuild the model. You can stop it from using to stop from using it. And how do you think about something like semantic drift coming in? Like what what we're measuring doesn't matter nearly as much is is there some kind of way that you measure is this still having the impact that we we expected right you talk about the model itself degrading but it might be that the the thing that we're interacting with is becoming less relevant right so you, you say okay um we're you're you're talking about like i used to cover semiconductors and you might say okay the the cost of a semiconductor um more and more started to move towards software, right? Rather than the actual physical piece of the silicon. And so the cost of silicon fluctuations didn't nearly as much impact um, the actual margins of these companies because less and less, it was less and less important of, of what was going on. So if you were to really measure that back in, you know, the 60s or 70s, that might greatly, greatly affect margins because the, the companies couldn't raise their prices if, if things went way up, but they also didn't have to cut their prices very quickly if the cost went way down. So like, do you start to think about, I mean, this kind of almost feels like monitoring on monitoring on monitoring. And I think, Anybody who's familiar with the ML ops space has probably seen the Spider-Man meme of the multiple Spider-Mans pointing at each other with around monitoring tools and things. But just I'm trying to understand conceptually, like what what is the thing that typically creates the issue where the model is no longer nearly as impactful or effective? Is it the degradation? Is it you know the concept drift or data drift or like what 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 is typically are you seeing um from because you're talking to so many different companies i think it's it's useful to to get that you know i think there are two different issues and they're like really really like on the different uh, sides of the uh, scale so one is when the model is no longer relevant because you're just solving a wrong problem right so you maybe not need at all the output of this model because you don't know how to use it and it happens pretty often, especially if you started with some sort of like R&D approach, you create some model, you deploy it, but then you actually learn that no one is using it or people are using it in a completely wrong way that you did not foresee initially, right? They just pick the output of the model and use it in a different way. So this is more of a kind of product problem, if I may say, right? So because machine learning model is usually either a part of some product or feature of it, or it's like kind of standalone application that solves a specific problem, right? And if you're solving the wrong problem in the wrong way, the new model is, is not relevant. And in this case, the hard part is measuring and solving it, because here we talk about measuring the business KPI or the product KPI or the business impact of the model. 
And it's not always that straightforward, right? You might need to run an A-B test. You might need to work specifically focused on this use case. So this one, this first problem is basically building a wrong problem or using it not in a way that it was uh, intended. And second situation is when you're actually solving a really important problem, right? So it costs something to your business. You are either increasing revenue or you're helping decrease cost. You're helping to automate something. But somehow this model is not bringing the desired value because maybe the quality of the predictions are not as expected, right? You may be dealing with low quality data. So in the end, your model is not working because the inputs are not at the level that you need them. Right? And this is something that can be solved, can be worked on, and you need to catch a specific bug, specific issue that the model is facing. And it can happen on multiple levels, right? So it can be purely software bugs. I mean, literally, like your service might be down, right? It can be data quality issues. And this is, I think, something that intersects a lot with the whole general like data mesh and data analytics world, because we're talking about the quality of the data assets. In this case, on a particular product, which is a machine learning model that consumes them, and then there are model quality issues, which would be the basically model accuracy or model decay that you might rebuild in updates. Yeah, and I think um, I would love to, I mean, I, I think the, is it still even relevant? I think that's a difficult thing to test. Do you have any advice on people trying to, t like, because I think what we haven't had in the data space specifically is um, that we've actually had the concept of let's shut this down, right? That we haven't had that product mindset. And I think ML, the cost of running ML, people are much more aware of it because, you know, it is something that is degrading and that you're constantly having to kind of keep up and running versus people are like, eh, we're just running this report. It's fine if, if nobody's really uh, using it anymore because the cost of the report isn't that huge or blah, 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 which typically it is because somebody's using something that's no longer any good. But like, how, how do you measure that relevancy? Like, and, and how do you think about that again with, was it relevant to when, when does it not become relevant? And, and, you know, there are all the memes out there around, um, you know, your P score for, of, you know, dot 0 0.501 and, oh no, and dot 0 0.499. Yay. We, we got it under, you know, the, the 5%, uh, P value. So like, how do you think about talking to people about the relevancy? Well, ideally, you should talk about this before you build a model, right? Because identifying the business KPI and like how you're going to measure the success, like if this model is built and put into production, is the critical problem that you have to solve, right? Sometimes you might figure out that actually you don't know what you're doing exactly because you're expecting just some miracle, miracles, you know, like some oracle that you can ask any question and it will predict you anything. I think we have already moved from this space, but it still happens sometimes. Managing expectations of the business stakeholders, understanding how to solve a particular business problem with machine learning is a huge issue, right? But in ideal world, when you create this model, you already choose an, uh, some sort of like a business KPI and you translate it back to the model metrics. So, I mean, accuracy is like a simple example. It can be more specific metrics depending on the type of problem you solve and so on, right? But when you create this model, you would then test and evaluate it on some historical data set or during an experiment, and then you would still need to monitor this quality metric. It is very important to choose the metric right because there are many caveats. There are metrics that look good. You know, if you want 99% of something, you can find a metric that will say 99% of something, right? Depends on how you frame it. 
But yeah, so you, you should have a metric. And I think this is a big difference between machine learning and data worlds, right? Because in machine learning, you always have some metric because your model is optimizing this metric, right? Yeah, I th- it, it, and it's I know it's a little bit difficult to try and pin you down on, okay, tell us exactly how you measure relevancy in ML so that we can apply it to, to data and analytics. But do you have, I mean, you know, outside of the, the KPIs, like, do you have... Uh, things that you've seen where people could look for red flags or anything like that around relevancy? Because I think this is, is especially when you start to talk about even the, the features within a data set, that is this still relevant to what we were trying to, this is almost the semantic drift concept to me is, is this still relevant to what we are trying to display, right? What we're trying to share of what's going on and that's slightly different than is this still relevant to the business? And so like that kind of that semantic drift around, does this still say what we're trying to get it to say? Is is there anything that you've seen in the ML world? You know, I, I don't know. Is there anything where, where there's not necessarily even a direct tie or a direct correlation, but anything that you've learned from, because you, you've seen so many times when you've put in new interesting things around data, like the ML world, you're putting way more out there more commonly, you know, more frequently than than anybody else. You know, I think still there is a pretty big difference here between machine learning and data in general, because every machine learning model is purpose-built, right? And most of the companies, they do have like, you know, not millions of these models. Like they, I, I sure can imagine companies having like thousands of data tables and dashboards easily, right? When we talk about machine learning models, it can be dozens, right? In big companies, it might be hundreds, right? But these are not like uh, unlimited number. That's why every time you create a single model, you start with defining this KPI. And this is probably different from a case, you know, when you're just like hoarding data just in case or, you know, creating tables because you can, creating dashboards because you can. But uh, kind of circling back to the question of how do you identify like if the model is relevant or if in general, like you're solving the right problem. I think the biggest issue is always the communication with the business stakeholders, right? Especially with um, data science. It used to have some sort of, um, you know, like kind of R&D attitude when you're just like uh, trying to solve interesting problems, looking at the data, trying out interesting algorithms, right? And there is a certain disconnect between this and what can actually move the middle and move the needle for the business, right? And how you bridge this is only through communication with business stakeholders and business stakeholders sharing information, actually helping data scientists to formulate the right problems, to choose the right features, to interpret them in the correct way. And sometimes there is a sort of an issue, you know, when people just throw data to the data science team and say, or to machine learning team and say, hey, your AI is very smart, just figure it out, you know. And trying to solve this kind of communication gap is usually a big deal. And I think like embedding data scientists and machine learning engineers and business teams is something that works. Uh, and we have seen successes when companies kind of move from this centralized data team to like embedded uh, teams because it helps exactly with this communication, right? So how do you build the right model? How do you solve the right problems? How do you interpret the features that you're using in the business context, right? Without just expecting algorithms to figure the, everything for themselves. So it is always communication problem. And this is probably 
like shared across so many domains, right? Not just data and machine learning. Yeah, I'm, I'm laughing here because I'm like, I guess I am kind of asking you for the uh, ML fairy dust of like, here, just what can we sprinkle on this to make it so that we know uh, whether what we're measuring is still the thing that, that we thought we were or what we're sharing. And so I, I think that's, um, it's funny how many of the uh, podcast episodes of people who have really dug into what works and what doesn't, it just keeps coming back to communication more than, than anything else. And so it's, it's, it's pretty funny that that's a, such a thing. Um, one thing I, I, I think that ML has really, really figured out quite well that the data space is still trying to figure out is, is again, the cost of change around data has been so expensive, right? And ML has, has figured out how to do graceful evolution. And I think some of that has been learned from the software side where, you know, um, software, I don't know that it's even graceful evolution because a lot of times it's just like, we're going to just drop all this, the, you know, these 10 columns and whatever, and it's not a big deal because we're not really using them anymore and blah, blah, blah. But like, how do you plan? Is it that you're planning to retrain? And so people should think about um, that they've got to... Uh, just completely rethink the the model, but then that creates issues for the consumers, right? So like, how how do you think about that graceful evolution of you, you, you are also ML is dependent on upstream, and then downstream things are dependent on it. So like, you're kind of in the middle. And that's kind of where data is going to be with data mesh is you're you've got your upstream sources that are evolving. And then you've got your downstream consumers where you can't just break all their stuff or that you've got to give them affordances to make it so that they can version and things like that. So big, 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 big question, kind of a, a, an obnoxious one to try and throw it all into one thing. But just would love to, to kind of start the conversation around that and maybe dig into uh, a couple of different aspects. Mm-hmm. You know, surprisingly, machine learning has not figured out that yet in many cases. So I've talked to companies who said like, hey, we built a model. You know, and then like at some point randomly we understood that it's not working because we actually did not really monitor and it was the end user who came complaining. So these things still happen. So usually you would wait for the first disaster like this to start thinking about monitoring. With the exception of the companies who have like really strong engineering culture and they deal with real-time models because it's already a software service, you will inevitably add monitoring, at least on the software side. But yes, you're absolutely right that this both kind of downstream and upstream issues that you need to take into account and prepare to catch. And you start, of course, with enabling of this monitoring, right? So how do you actually know that something is wrong? And you come from both sides. So one is on the data ingestion side. You need to have some sort of data validation and data contract, probably like a a good example of reference to data mesh here, right? So you need to uh, have an agreement with the data source that your model is using and to make sure that you can check and catch some bugs and also maybe incorporate some fallback. By fallback, I mean that uh, there is some alternative way of making the decision in case you, for example, don't receive the data. If you're dealing with a very risky use case, you need to be able to predict something even in this scenario, right? And another one is the monitoring of the actual model performance, right? So as soon as you have the true labels, so you know if what you predicted is right or wrong, or sometimes even before you know that, you can already look at the model output and evaluate if it's sufficiently good to act on it, right? You need to be able to monitor this downstream impact, model quality, business KPI, and again, factor this in. If something is wrong, you should go and rebuild the model 
stop the moral or somehow intervene. So you kind of have to monitor both sides and prepare to build processes and tools that kind of keep this going, right? So data scientist who build the model stays engaged with the model because if something is wrong, he will be the person, she will be the person to take care of it. So it's not a one and done thing. And this is something that many companies still have to internalize. Right now, there's like no such role as a like MLOps engineer focused on monitoring and maintenance. It like spreads around the teams. I'm sure in the future, we're going to see maybe like with companies that have a lot of models that it will be like a separate team, right? To take care of the model maintenance. But this is a big piece. It's, it, it's Roy time, right? When you have the model, it finally pays off, right? It brings you the business value that you expect it to bring. This is the most crucial part to ensure that this happens. So when you think about, you talked about um, the monitoring and kind of the contract agreement with the source, but that source is going to still have evolutionary changes, right? And so, you know, within Data Mesh, a big part of this is that you don't have unexpected mm-hmm. uh, changes or, or that you have much fewer of them that people actually understand somewhat their downstream impact, but there still is going to be changes. So like, is there any engineering techniques that people have developed or is it more just like, oh, our source is changing. We've got to figure out how to deal with that. Is is there like a way to gracefully prepare for that so that you are, I mean, you you talked again about the the contracts against the monitoring and, and against fallback of, when this happens, do this, right? And so it's it's almost like a rule based around your ML. Um, and I've, I've talked about this where you can't uh, model out all the, the potential issues. So you just say, if it's not within this bounds, ignore it or react in this way. If it's not in this bounds, like, um, you know, if, if you're talking about like real-time pricing and it's like, it's not within this bounds, okay, well, you're not gonna drop the price 99% because you got this weird thing that flowed through, don't do that. That's just stupid versus, you know, I mean, maybe you do spike your price and it's like, okay, nobody's just going to buy, but you're not also, you know, killing yourself from, from a profitability standpoint. But um, have you found that there are good techniques or ways that people can look at so that they are prepared? Because again, with data mesh, the operational model that we're taking our data from changes and we're now having more intentionality around that where the people that are, you know, handling the operational model or the operational database or whatever, that they're like understanding <laughs> that their changes have impact and what those impacts are. But like the, there are still going to be changes that happen. Have you found anything where people are okay or, or make it so that those changes aren't nearly as painful? It does depend on the use case because, I mean, there are some situations, maybe it's like just content recommendations. If you show some irrelevant recommendation, I mean, it's not a big deal, right? You maybe lose some conversion, but no one gets hurt. And then there are other use cases when you can actually lose a lot of money by giving this 100% discount on something, right? Or if you're working with a production line, I mean, like your whole production might become scrap. So, of course, depending on the risks of the use case that you're dealing with, you need to have like different levels of guardrails and monitoring and like this fallback uh, alternatives available to, to tackle this. And of course, the more important the use case, the more you have to think about this. And I truly believe it's kind of a product problem because it is the solution design that goes beyond machine learning, right? That factors in the specifics of the use case. And unfortunately, most of the solutions right now are more of a manual kind of policy layer, right? 
there might be some smarter solutions when, for example, you like uh, fill some averages instead of the data that you didn't receive that might make sense, right? But it still requires understanding of what you can do in this specific use case. Maybe you can apply some default prediction. Maybe you can just send it for manual review to someone who can make an expert judgment instead of using machine learning in this case, right? So there are all these options, but they're mostly in the products field rather than engineering. So the engineering solution is to catch this, right? To not uh, to not miss it out, right? To not just generate some prediction that you should not act on. Again, I'm I'm looking for you to have the the fairy dust. Just like, <laughs> here's know. how we, we we can just uh, deal with uh, changes and and be automatically right. change. But it's it, but it's also good to to hear that these challenges aren't um, because uh, you know that they they aren't solved somewhere else, and we just haven't really extracted them from it because that is kind of the way a lot of the things around um, data have been of of you know with data mesh it brings in like DevOps and and microservices concepts and stuff of, hey, really the only way to continually scale these things um, when you're at a significant scale and and things is uh, loose coupling, right? You can't have things that are tightly coupled and that you just keep adding more and more tightly coupled things because then everything is rigid and nothing nothing can move. So you've got to move to loosely coupled and moving to loosely coupled is not easy, but it's like it's the only way that you can have this stuff really start to scale. But um, yeah, so I think uh, one one other question that I had had of you you've been on the kind of ML side rather than the the data side. Um, what are some good ways that you've been thinking about how ML and data can better collaborate, interoperate with each other? Like what I, originally when we were first talking about this, you were thinking about what can ML learn from data mesh? And I was thinking about what can data mesh learn from ML? And so like, how can we better collaborate, not just information sharing, but like if you had a thing that data people do really poorly for, or ML, is it that they're always expecting the model to be perfect and that, you know, that the upstream changes do make it change or like, how can ML help you? How or how can uh, the data folks help the ML folks? And how can the ML folks help the data folks and collaborate better? You know, I really hope that there will not be such division. You know, as like ML folks and data folks actually like sitting in different rooms because I do believe that they actually need to work together. Like, take a business use case like term prediction. You might be able to solve it with a predictive model, which will be like fancy and use machine learning algorithms. You can also learn it with traditional analytics. And how do you actually decide who's going to apply this or that algorithm if you predefine that it should be machine learning, right? You might be a hammer in search of a nail. So you should actually, I think, approach many data problems with an open mindset. And sometimes the solution is to create a machine learning model and system on top of it. Sometimes it's just traditional analytics. So actually, I would not, you know, like build a fence <laughs> between these two worlds. But what's interesting is that somehow, uh, for example, in terms of tooling, we do have like a modern data stack or probably already postmodern data stack, right? We have an evolving uh, machine learning stack, but uh, they are somehow not exactly, you know, like uh, sticking together. They are developing independently because there are two groups of very smart people that are working on these things and somehow they don't really talk a lot to each other. So I would actually imagine on the like industry level, it would be interesting to collaborate a bit more. And on the company level, I think like you kind of like, hit the right point with this communication and like, you know, data updates. Because this simple situation where someone changes something, 
without taking into account the potential downstream impact of who else is using this data source and so on, or just throwing the data, you know, that you have without explaining what the fields work, uh, what the fields mean. This is <laughs> so commonplace, right? It's like, it's almost ridiculous that every time when we talk about, you know, like fancy monitoring algorithms, a lot of the problems that we find with this are trivial problems of, you know, like someone didn't update someone about this thing changing. And <laughs> I think this is this is everywhere, right? In machine learning, in, in, in data, and probably in many other analytical fields. Yeah, if, if you see something, say something. If, if you think that, you know, and... And we haven't had the communication to know who and the tooling to know who is actually consuming from, you know, downstream yeah. in a lot of cases. I talk about this with the software developers of they have to make changes to actually do their job. And they don't they can't really know what those changes in, in most organizations, they can't know what those changes are going to do because they don't know who's who's consuming downstream and not just even first level downstream, but like 10th level downstream. So their changes are going to cause something but they they can't they can't like be kind of the analysis paralysis of okay i can't actually change it because what's going to happen so um yeah and and i think uh that communication is is really uh necessary but i i, I liked what you were talking about as well of the um the stacks are kind of evolving and i think one thing with data mesh is and you talked much earlier about purpose-built. ML models are purpose-built. And I think depending on what the, the needs are, um, if you really are optimizing for low latency of actually like the, not, not the model information that it's trained on, but like the model that it's reacting to, most ML models are in real time of the interactions. And so a lot of people are trying to say everything should be general use, but like, what have you seen around people trying to, to, I guess, almost get too cute with ML models of trying to, to serve too many purposes and that they're trying to serve the same analytical things from the ML model? Or, or what have you seen around that that's kind of caused issues in, in between the two different spaces? You know, I think that is the use of the model output that sometimes uh, kind of causes issues. Because you might be using the output of a machine learning model in some of your analytical work without understanding what exactly this model was uh, you know, created for. And this is sometimes happening because you did not define from the very beginning what is the problem that you're trying to solve. So maybe like you have a machine learning model that predicts the probability of conversions uh, for some particular product, right? And then you take this model and you start using it for some completely different purpose, you know, like... Uh, putting some random inputs and trying to get some knowledge from the inner workings of the model to inform your marketing campaign, which is completely different purpose, right? You should not use the machine learning model that is precisely built to predict conversions in the most accurate way for some other purpose, right? And I think like this misuse and but maybe just misunderstanding, right, of how the systems work and this clash between analytical approach when you try to uh, kind of come up with first principles, make certain assumptions about like, causality, like how uh, correlations, right? So like what influences what? And machine learning model that just takes the data, you know, and tries to predict this thing in the best possible way, it might use the wrong features and still work, right? So I, I think like this understanding of the differences of the domain, that is very important. And both in the side of educating the business users and business analysts that might collaborate to avoid this uh, kind of like non-planned use of the model and potential uh, issues that stem from it. But I think that this 
sorry, the purpose build point that you mentioned is something that comes very naturally with machine learning, and this is great potentially to use with uh, with the within the data domain, right? Because with machine learning, it forces you to think what is the KPI that you want to optimize, right? If you start with this, this is this is a great start for pretty much every problem that you want to solve, right? What exactly are you doing, and how are you going to know that you succeeded? Well, and, and I think it's it's kind of my my question as well would be: Are you seeing that there is pressure to not do purpose built, right? That it can do X, but eh, it also has the ability to do Y and Z because it, they're kind of all interconnected, and so I can pass through, you know, instead of passing through, you know, these fifteen columns into A and these fifteen columns into B, but there's twelve columns overlap and 15 columns into model C. But again, there's there's 10 overlap with A and, and nine overlap with, with model B. And so why don't I just put them all together and they're, you know, whatever that ends up being like 20, 22 columns or whatever. But it's, it's much more efficient to do it that way, but it's not really, and like how, like what we're trying to move to with data mesh is, well, in, in some organizations is still uh, initially purpose-built, but that that purpose expands much more as you have additional users for this versus ML, the purpose is to stay essentially, at least from what you're, you're telling me and, and what I'm interpreting, is to stay, like to not uh, kind of start to have that scope creep of, well, it could also solve and it could also solve and it could solve instead of like, no, we need it to focus on this specific thing. So like, uh, you know, there, there is that scope creep within data mesh. That's actually kind of a good thing on, on the mesh data products, because then you're serving additional use cases, but with ML, it's not. So I, I'm not even sure exactly the question I'm trying to ask, but I'm just trying to get my arms around like, is that something that you would really strongly push back on on the ML side? And so that that it is an anti-pattern that we want to not try and do the same thing with ML because it's going to get you, yourself into trouble. In reality, it just simply would not work. I mean, if you would try to build, you know, like different models, uh, like or you try to reuse the same model for different purposes, it just will not work. What you can reuse, though, is features. And uh, there are actually some developments around feature stores, which help you do that. So you might have different models that are using the same features, right? And they're basically served as a data product for different machine learning models. You would still create different machine learning models because this is how this the technology works, right? You need to train a model for a specific purpose to optimize a specific goal to predict a specific thing. So it kind of forces you to operate this way. But in terms of, you know, like scaling the impact of machine learning in general, Absolutely right. So if you can reuse features around across different models, companies are doing this. This is great. This also basically helps re- reuse the effort that you, you 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 put into creating and maintaining the quality of these features. Just in some cases, you might be solving very different problems. So you kind of inevitably end up with you know different data sources. You might be using some external data source here, different table there, you know, to create to solve different problems. So it kind of naturally comes this way just because that's how technology works. But there is some, let's call it like economies of scale, right? In, in feature access, in reusing the architecture. And in some cases, you might be building very, very similar models, just like each of them still exist as a model X, model Y. 
It, it's, it's interesting because I hadn't thought about this um, and because I, I really haven't dug in very deeply into ML, but like, I guess I never really thought of what features actually meant. But on the data side, you could think of it as almost a proto data product, right? Like where you'd think about, hey, this same information is going to flow into 10 different data products, right? And so, and it's going to flow in in this way. And so at least we're going to do the initial um uh, analysis here and that I it, it has one source where it is reused and that that's kind of a proto thing that isn't designed necessarily for data consumers to directly use but it's almost a proto data product mesh data product for other data products only to consume from because it's instead of redoing the same t- Tony Bear uh, wrote an article about like if you're redoing the same analysis across 15 different data products that's very expensive. And do you really want to do that? And do you really want to have them chained where, okay, well, one of these needs it on uh, an hourly update basis and the, the rest don't. So then do you have to necessarily do every single one if it's downstream of two or three different data products that every single one above it has to be refreshed on an hourly basis or not? And so I think I think this is really interesting because I'm, I'm starting to rethink of how we do kind of the production cycle around data, because I think it's, it's interesting and important, but um, is there anything that you have been kind of hoping to learn from the data side? Cause you know, again, I'm, I'm learning so much from the ML side, but is there anything where you think ML could learn uh, to uh, take some of the practices from, from the data side that might be helpful? Yeah, personally, I'm super interested in the data quality side and how these two kind of pieces interface with each other, because I still believe you're going to have both. You, you have to kind of control the quality of the overall data assets, right? Detect the tables that are not refreshed, detect like some missing data and so on. And you need to control for the data inputs to a particular data product, which can be a machine learning model right, at the moment of ingestion, because still you need to catch these bugs when this happens, right? And this is kind of solving the same problem from two different sides, right, from two different angles. Probably we're going to do both, and most of the company is going to do both eventually. I'm just curious, you know, like how we integrate it and reuse it and kind of learn from each other. I'm personally actually in touch and good friends with a few founders that are solving uh, data quality monitoring, right, and whereas we are focused on machine learning model quality monitoring. And Still, there are like, these are different problems, but there are a lot of things that we can share and learn from each other. And the same applies to machine learning field and data analytics fields in general. I'm super excited about it. I don't have the answer yet. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and I, I kind of have been wondering about this. You talked a little bit about the monitoring the contracts. You talked about kind of ML is data in motion, right? Like it's, it's not that you're, I mean, sometimes you can land it and then react to it. But in a lot of cases, like, latency is in the milliseconds it matters right like it's it's not that you can be like okay i'm going to be um reacting to this thing you know i mean some cases it's not necessarily that but a lot of cases it is recommendation engines and things like that okay i'm clicking through onto this page on the e-commerce site i've got to show the recommendation by the time the person's scrolling down i can't like show it 10 seconds later but um i, I kind of do you need when you think about like the the data pipe um and, and you know i, I kind of hesitate to use the word pipeline because that has all sorts of other connotations but you know you have data that is 
um, you're, you're either pulling from source or it's getting pushed into your source. And do you actually want data filters on both sides, right? Where that producer has to be doing saying, if this tries to malform, if this isn't complete, or if it doesn't fit these parameters, I'm not going to put it on the pipeline. And then on the other side, it, you know, the consumer says, if it has these malformed or whatever, I'm not going to consume it from the pipeline. And here's how I'm going to react to it. And that it feels like it's double the effort, which it kind of is, but it's also like there, the pipeline itself can malform things. So you can't just, and if you just try and make it all, um, there was this, this investigation I started to do into consumer driven testing and it's useful, but it's also kind of an a-hole move, right? Because you're, you're putting all the onus on the consumer instead of the producer saying, I am going to contractually agree that I'm not going to produce things in this bad way. You still need to make sure that this stuff is working well, but I'm going to, uh, because stuff can, in the midst of the, the, while it's in motion, can can still malform and get wrong and all sorts of stuff. But um, that I'm going to commit to my best effort to not put bad data onto here instead of just say, it's your, it's your problem if it's bad data that's coming down, down your path. Is there anything that you've seen on that side that's, that's useful, especially that data in motion? Like there's observability of, is this, you know, oh, this thing was wrong versus don't react to this, right? Like there's observing and there's like, action, right? So what's the action on bad data in, in motion <laughs> instead of just observing it? Well, I, I think it's a bit of a difference between monitoring and testing, right? So like you might be like uh, tracking some metrics and just like throwing on some dashboards and then if they go off, you go and investigate. And in other cases, you actually do real testing. And this is actually one of the things that we recently added to our own tool. Right, because still a lot of machine learning models, uh, I agree with you that a lot of them are real time, but a lot of them are batch. And for batch models, when you're just like generating prediction every hour or maybe every day or maybe even every week, it makes sense to kind of like have these checks as tests. You just received a new batch of data. Is it good enough? I train my model. Is it not good enough? I'll go and figure out what's wrong with it. You generated predictions. Are they good enough to act on them? Okay, I'll send the newsletter that I incorporate the same, right? They're not good enough? Okay, I'm going to go and recheck my data. So these are two different ways. And I'm afraid we have to do both. Because it's great if the table was not updated and maybe the data producer informed the machine learning team in advance, hey, we will not be able to send out the newsletter tomorrow because we just didn't get the data, right? But maybe they forgot to do this <laughs> and you still need to be able to catch it. Or like you said, the transformation was wrong. It was the bug in the feature transformation code. So the data producer was right. It was the data engineering side of machine learning model that was wrong, right? So unfortunately, there are so many places where it can break. So if your model is important and the final consumer, who is the business user or your clients or your customer, right? They are the ones who you should care most. And your internal supply, the supply chain might have, you know, multiple checkpoints. <laughs> I, again, I'm, I'm asking for you just, I, I don't think I'm asking too much by just saying, can you just magically solve this for us? Can't you just tell us that ML has solved this and that we can copy paste that to data. I mean, it's kind of refreshing, I think, for a lot of people to hear that the people where this is even more necessary and more impactful, that there isn't a, a solution yet, because it did 
doesn't mean the data folks are that far behind. It would be lovely if there were, but it's also like, okay, we're not crazy. We're not the only ones that are seeing the same thing. You know, because I deal with like real production models, not like some research. And if you look at research, there are like a lot of fancy things. There are active learning algorithms, like self learning models and whatnot. But in practice, what you see are usually the most like true and tested, the more boring implementations of these technologies. And sadly, like everything in technology is still somehow manual, right? You might be retraining your models automatically, but there is still a data scientist who owns this model, who understands the features and the business use case that has to intervene if something goes wrong, right? And I, I, I don't have like a silver bullet. I know that when you say machine learning or AI, some people would expect that we're not there yet for better or for worse. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's kind of also refreshing, though, that we don't just turn everything over to the machines and just go, go do it. And we don't understand what's going on. Those those kind of black box solutions yeah. end up being. Um, We're going to uh, still, still keep our jobs for a while. Yeah. Um, so I, I have one last question that I think is kind of helpful for people to to think about um, when they're they're kind of in this space, which is how do you think about like really measuring, you talked about the KPIs, but like, how do you think about measuring if an ML model is really worth building or putting into production or things like that? Because when we're trying to think about on the data mesh side of, is this data product worth building? And is it worth building? And then we find out that maybe it's not as as useful. And like, how do we think about that kind of shutting down? And, and you did talk about the KPIs, but like, is there anything that's that's kind of that you would advise someone on specifically like digging into this because people again want the I, I want to be alerted when it's no longer the the good thing instead of like really the high communication level and things like that. You know, I think uh, quick iterations are the best solution to this. I mean, I've spent quite a lot of time. You know, even doing those sort of workshops, you know, when you try to ideate on different machine learning applications you can create. I was also engaged in projects which took months until you get the first model that you can even look to and evaluate, right? And this is usually the most wasteful part because with machine learning, some ideas are good, some ideas are bad, some ideas are great, but the data is not there. So the best thing that you can do is actually have some sort of like MVP very fast to be able to like kind of like back of the napkin evaluate the quality and potential business impact of the model. Because most machine learning models are kind of expensive. You need to make sure that there is a potential for significant savings, significant in the scale of the company that you're dealing with, right, to actually create it. So again, no silver bullets. Experimentation, there are different ways how you can do offline testing even without putting model in production if you have like some historical data. Sometimes you can run an experiment fairly fast. So learning to do this, quickly iterating and allowing yourself, you know, to make mistakes and pick wrong ideas, I think is the best approach here. Because uh, again, yeah, so sometimes you have great ideas, but the model, you just cannot build it. Yeah. And I think it's, uh, this is something that keeps coming up of, um, if you have proper communication with consumers from it, it's possible. If you don't, you're kind of screwed. Yeah, because... Because if people like if you're trying to ideate and you're trying to really go through and say, okay, it, let's put together something and figure out is this useful? Is this worth it? Right? And people start to go, oh, you put this thing onto the data mesh, therefore it is I can consume from it and trust from it and, and do all of that. That's a that's such a 
a, a slippery slope if you don't have that that trust that people are going to RTFM, you know, read the freaking manual, usually a different word in there, but um, that that trust and that communication is so crucial. So I, I think I, I've learned a lot from this. I've learned a lot from the ML space, but it's helped me kind of rethink a lot of things on, on the, the data and analytics space. So um, this, is, this has been really great for me. Uh, is there anything we didn't cover that you think is important to, or anyway, you kind of want to wrap up the episode, any one point you want to kind of hammer on or anything like that? You know, probably one point I want to kind of like repeat, reiterate a bit is that this maintenance part is usually it doesn't sound very exciting, especially if you're coming from this more researchy domain, you want to look at cool models, you want to have like deep learning, you know, like the biggest, the fanciest model and so on. But this is literally the most important things. I just want to kind of like highlight it, especially if you're maybe a business user thinking about creating this model, like you have to factor in the maintenance, the cost of maintenance and the processes around it. It is not a one and done thing. It is not a model that you create and it lasts forever. And because you want it to continue delivering business value, you have to plan for it. Yeah, well, I think the degradation of the model is is a good thing to think about for that you're, if you don't treat, the, if you just treat it as a data asset, it's something that you have produced versus if it's data as a product, it's something that is ongoing with maintenance. And I think that, you know, especially when you talked about what is the ongoing cost, a lot of people think of data mesh as an Im- initial implementation. And it's like, no, you've got ongoing, <laughs> like, there, there, there's the stuff that you've already built. It doesn't just run itself at no cost. You have to think about that. And, and measuring, does it still have value? It might've had value in the time and it didn't, or it might've been a bet and the bet didn't pay off and that's okay. You made a bet, right? Like that's the, that's what a bet is. So, And if you build it, it will break, I promise you. So think about it from the very beginning. It will break. What are you going to do and how are you going to know about it? Yeah. I, 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 you know, A lot of people think about it. If, if you build it, value will come. But I like if you build it, it will break. I, I, I like that, that a little bit more. That's a little bit more my, uh, my style. Um, so, uh, Yelena, this has been super phenomenal. Um, one, it... it where would you like, I'm sure there's going to be people who want to follow up. Where would you like that to happen? And uh, what would you want them following up about? And as well, if you could work in a little bit more about what Evidently AI does, because again, I think it's a very interesting company and it's very useful in the ML space, plus it's ML. So that's, or sorry, it's um, open source. So that is uh, near and dear to my heart because I think way too many people are trying to jump to just trying to extract the money instead of uh, add the value. And I think your content and stuff as well has been, uh, I keep seeing it pop up into my space, even though I'm not following that many ML people. People keep just saying, this is this is the good content in ML. So we're truly trying to solve this problem, the model monitoring in a general way. So if any of the listeners had models in production that they want to keep an eye on and they're trying to understand how to do this, reach out to me, it's on LinkedIn, on GitHub, that we have a discourse community, whichever channel you prefer, and let's have a chat. Because we are truly interested in figuring out the best practices for the industry as a whole, different architectures, how you integrate it with other tools. So if you're right now building a machine learning platform, or you are like rethinking or just starting to think about this, let's chat. And yes, uh, it's LinkedIn the best for me, but you can find us everywhere. It's evidently AI. 
Yeah. Uh, and and I've, I've seen kind of the interactions and stuff. And, and I do really recommend anybody out there as well on the data side to kind of go into this conversation and, you know, reach out to Elena with your uh, kind of data science leads and or ML leads and be like, okay, let's let's figure out how we are actually thinking about the combination between the data and the ML side, because ML is that purpose-built data mesh. We're trying to not be as purpose-built, but, or maybe start purpose-built to a use case, but also reusable. And like, how do we, how do we differentiate between those and still drive the most value from both? So I I think it's, it, I always learn a lot when I have conversations with you. So I recommend a lot of people reach out. So, um, but again, thank you so much for your time today, Yelena. And uh, as well, thank you everyone out there for listening. Thank you for having me. I'd again like to thank my guest today, Yelena Samuelova, who's the co-founder and CEO uh, at the ML model monitoring company and open source project, Evidently AI. You can find a link to her LinkedIn, as well as the company GitHub and blog in the show notes. If you are interested in ML, they put out a ton of really excellent content. So check it out if, if you're interested in that. Thank you. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. April of 2023, I left DataStacks, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started, so give them a shout for streaming and real-time AI needs. But I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information-as-a-service firm. Our offerings are affordable, and you can do them on a one-off or a month-to-month basis. You know, read kind of, throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest. You know, what, what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well and have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music.